0: We are in week eight of our series in the book of Genesis. We've been going through this uh, series for two months now. It is called Origins, and we are trying desperately to situate ourselves in the story that we've been given as Christians, which is Israel's story, so that we know how to live uh, today and we're learning who we are and who God is based on how uh, Israel's story and our story begins. And we're trying to ask better questions of the text than maybe uh, we've asked before, questions like what and why, rather than just how and when. Hoping that we're going to get better answers than maybe we're used to getting. And we're diving deeper on Wednesdays at 8 o'clock. I say this every week. Come join us. Uh, it's on Zoom. If you need the details, come and talk to me afterwards. Today what we're going to discover is that, um, you know, we talked about Genesis 3 the last two weeks, and we've described that event as the fall, but what we're going to see today is that the fall doesn't just happen in Genesis 3, it keeps happening. The struggle for power that Adam and Eve fall into gets amplified and extended through their children. The fall keeps happening, we keep falling, and we're going to see the results of that uh, today. So we're going to be in Genesis 4, verses 1 to 17. You can follow along in the Bibles that we have under the seats if you like. Just start at the beginning and go to chapter 4, or you can look it up on your phones. And and what I want to do as we uh, go through is I'm going to highlight specifically some of the names that are used throughout the story because they're going to become important later, okay? So I'm trying to connect the dots for us a little bit by adding some background to some of these terms that we might be familiar with, but are actually pointing to something that we may not have seen before, okay? All right, Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife Eve. Let the reader understand. We have kids in the room. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Cain's name means to possess or to acquire. That's one of my little additions. She said, that's Eve, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel means vapor or meaninglessness. It's the word that's found throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of his soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Uh, The word downcast literally means that his face fell or he looked away from the Lord. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod. Nod means adrift or wandering. East, of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. Let's proclaim some good news right out of the gate, shall we? The good news that we proclaim today is that the worst thing that you have ever done is not enough to halt God's love. Even in the moments of our greatest guilt when the consequences are too much to bear, God comes to us to help us make sense of our reality. He invites us to reckon with our wrongdoing, enabling us to see the mistrust that motivates us to harm and sin against each other. He works to gently restore us from the misconceptions that we have of Him. And He puts an end to our cycles of violence, repaying retribution with mercy. Brothers and sisters, where do you need the merciful God, to make sense of what seems senseless to you today. Um, I've said this many times throughout this whole series, but it bears repeating that Genesis is not just everyone's origin story, although it is, it's specifically Israel's origin story. And that's going to come into clear focus today. Um, And origin stories are archetypal. I know I've been using a lot of big words in this series, I'm sorry. Archetypal, though it means a story that helps us to interpret or make sense of current events, especially events that seem senseless, by looking at parallel situations from the past. Okay. So let's—it's—it's it's helpful, I think, at this point to remember Israel's story again. The reason I'm doing this is because I, I want you to see all the connecting dots between the story that I just read and the story of Israel. So I'm going to blow your minds, all right? Not, um, other people have blown my mind before, so it's not me. It's like biblical scholarship, okay, in general. Let's remember Israel's story. They were enslaved in Egypt, yeah, when after 400 years, God identifies them as what? His firstborn son. Who's Cain? The firstborn son. And God takes possession of Israel. He acquires them. He canes them. And they are brought forth from their slavery with the Lord's help to the land of Canaan, which happens to be a land of incredible abundance. God says this to his people in Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 to 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide, wells that you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Remember that one. Vineyards that you didn't plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 18, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. What's God saying to them? He's saying to them, you will be accepted if you do what's right. And the rest of Deuteronomy bears out what this good and right life looks like. It means to live generously because God has been generous with you. And it means to guard or to keep the most vulnerable among you. Be generous with God's generosity, guard and keep your brother. If I had more time, we would go through the entire book of Deuteronomy and show all the ways that God connects the treatment of people in and around Israel to the fact that they were actually given abundant opportunity and resources. Maybe we can look at that Wednesday if you want. And the prophets reveal, if you if, if you read any of the prophets later on in, in Israel's history, that over time Israel missed the mark. Right? They missed the mark of their responsibility and they turned their faces away from God. They mistrusted His goodness and His abundance, and they turned themselves to false gods that led them to treat both the poor and the marginalized, brothers and sisters and outsiders, with violence. They treat these people as if their lives are expendable, or meaningless, or a vapor. Able. In the pursuit of their own well-being. And the result is what? Exile. They are expelled from the land that God gave them, and they wander where? East. To a city where they're tasked with rebuilding their lives under the the threat of Babylonian power and an uncertain future. And yet... Despite pushing past God's warnings and inheriting the consequences of their choices, God promises that His protection and His blessing go with them. In fact, if you know any verse from the Old Testament, you know Jeremiah 29.11, which says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Who is this declaration of hope given to? the people who've been driven from their land and are now living in exile. In other words, God places a mark on His people to protect them in their moment of greatest vulnerability and guilt. You see all the dots? Are they, firing? Are they connecting for you? Cain's name means acquired, which is what God did for Israel. Both are firstborn sons, both given generosity. Both withhold generosity. Both treat their brothers' lives as dispensable. Both are pronounced guilty. Both are removed from their homeland. Both become wanderers traveling east. Both, even though all this is true, continue to be under God's covenantal love. Cain and Abel is an encapsulation of Israel's entire history in 17 verses. And what I'm going to contend today is that what this points us to, what this means for them and for us, is that this story is not just a, a story about two brothers in history, but is, it is a story of God's grace extended to his people at a moment in which they need it desperately to help them to make sense of the senselessness of their captivity in Babylon. This is God helping. Those that he loves come to grips with what has happened to them, why it has happened to them, and what continues to be true about him and about them even as they wander adrift in this new, unsure reality. Can you see it? When you start to see it, it's hard to unsee it. The good news that we proclaim today is that the worst thing that Israel ever did The worst thing that we have ever done is not enough to halt God's love. Even in our moments of greatest guilt, when the consequences are too much to bear, God comes to help us make sense of our senseless reality. He invites us to reckon with our wrongdoing. He enables us to see the mistrust that motivates us to harm and sin against others. And he works to gently restore us from the misconceptions that we have about him, putting an end to our cycles of violence by repaying violence with mercy. I want to talk about two aspects of this story, the nature of sin and the response of God. But first, we need to talk a little bit about the way stories function. We can't miss this. Too important. It is a very modern idea a very recent idea that the only way that a story can transmit truth is if it corresponds one to one with historical events. This is a very modern concept that preferences things like eyewitness accounts uh, and and um, and sort of news reports over and above other genres of communicating truth. In other words, we, uh, we as 21st century Western Americans have a bias towards accuracy rather than intent. We have a bias towards accuracy of the events rather than the intent of the author. And this isn't a bad um, thing. It's, this, this bias is not bad, it's just there. We have to own it. We have to recognize that it's part of the lenses that we read everything with. It's our perspective, and that's okay. We've come by it honestly, because we are a product of our culture, our Western Enlightenment culture. The only time it becomes a problem is when we think that the biblical authors share our bias. They don't they are writing from their perspective just as we are reading from ours. And, and biblical authors are incredibly comfortable with communicating truth in all kinds of genres of literature. Literatures like history, eyewitness accounts, sure, poetry, myth, allegory. See, if, if the point of the story of Cain and Abel is to communicate accurate history, we've got some problems. We don't like to like look at them, but they're there. Like if Cain is the, is the only child born to the only humans created, where in the world does he get a wife from? Mail order, Mail order from s- some other dimension. Like I'm sure Marvel, <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe would be fine with this. It was like we just borrow them from another universe and they come through the, s- the space-time portal, you know? Who is it that's trying to kill Cain if his brother is the only other one other than his parents? What is this city that Cain travels to and helps to establish? You know what I mean? Like, There are all these loose ends in the story if the story is about um, historical accuracy. But, but to, to, to see it through that lens, through our modern bias, is to miss the point. It's not trying to be historically accurate of the past. It's trying to bring clarity to the present, specifically to Israel's present and what they're struggling with, what their questions are, what they're going through. You know who understood this really well? Jesus. That was the Sunday school answer. You knew I was going to do it. Um, Jesus frequently tells stories that blend historical facts and fictional elements we have a word for these stories we call them parables and we're fine with Jesus doing it right i mean nobody's no nobody has an issue with Jesus going hey like you got that one piece of your story wrong jesus no if anything like the thing that jesus gets castigated for is not the fact that he messes up certain historical facts or brings in things that that didn't really happen. It's the point that Jesus is trying to make that always gets people's undies in a wrinkle. (laughs) It's his intent, not his accuracy, that gets people so upset, right? Think about like the rich man in Lazarus we're revealing our bias when our very first question about that story is did this actually happen it's it's revealing more about us than it is about the story Jesus's point is not whether or not it actually occurred Jesus' point is the point that he's trying to make through the story where does Jesus learn this storytelling technique from he learns it from the Jewish biblical authors that he as a rabbi would have been an expert on. Yeah? See, if it's true and we believe that it is that Jesus is the best picture that we have of God. Then it follows that this way of storytelling is the way that God has chosen to work not just in Jesus but throughout the the history of God working with in and through his people. It's not hard to see why. I mean, you could think of examples about how stories, biblical and otherwise, have changed your perspective on things, have helped you to see with clarity things that you couldn't see before. Right now, Mandy and, and our oldest um, just wrapped up a, a book on bullying, school bullying. And it was about two kids that like don't get along, and they're very different from one another, but they find out that they're both undergoing this sort of bullying at school and this like brings them together and unites them. And they're both experiencing bullying in different kinds of ways but they begin to see life through the other person's perspective and this creates a great friendship and it, it highlights like how bullying can take on all these different shapes and forms in school. It doesn't have to look just one way. And, and, and not only is the story like compelling and interesting one, one of the things that he was doing is helping Caleb to like, identify the ways that he's experienced bullying too. And, and the ways that he um, might be able to identify other people within his class that might be experiencing bullying in different forms and fashions than maybe he has. And just to begin to, to grow empathy and compassion for those other students. To begin to reach out to them. and connect with them. So, this is what stories do. Stories are, are meant to do this. They help us to make sense of seemingly senseless events. They help us to connect the dots, to identify with people in the story, even to be able to, to name and own our own failures and transgressions, to come out from under uh, shame that may be keeping us from experiencing connection and community with each other or with God. In other words, God meets us in and through stories. And this story says to Israel, as it says to us, that the worst thing that you have ever done cannot halt God's love for you. That even in the moments of greatest guilt, when the consequences of your sin feel too much to bear, God comes to you to help you make sense of this reality. He invites you to to own your wrongdoing, yes, but He enables you to see the mistrust that motivated you to the wrongdoing in the first place. And He works gently to restore you from the misconceptions that brought about it all together. Putting an end to our cycles of violence by extending mercy. Brothers and sisters, where do you need this merciful God to make sense of your reality today. All right, I, I promised two aspects of the story. I'm going to give you two aspects. I'm going to try to be brief, okay? The nature of sin and the response of God. I know I used those headings a couple weeks ago, but again, this is meant to be like a second fall narrative. We're supposed to see it this way. that This is an extension in the sense of what happened to Adam and Eve. So, the nature of sin. Genesis 4 is the first time that the word sin appears in the Bible. So we're supposed to, like, pay attention here. Literally, the word sin means to miss the mark. Maybe you've heard that definition before. To miss the mark. It's like a, an archery term where you're supposed to hit the mark and you missed it, yeah? You, you fell away from the mark. But oftentimes we frame uh, this idea of sin as missing the mark of perfection. That in a sense we're like, we're supposed to be perfect beings and we've fallen short of that perfection and so we're guilty by missing the mark of perfection. When I think in reality sin is actually to fall short not of perfection but of purpose. Human beings have a function, we are image bearers which means we are supposed to reflect the authority and the goodness of God. So to sin, to fall short, means that we have missed the mark of that purpose. We're not, we're not living as we should, what we're created for. And, and this, you know, in an obvious fashion, happens to Cain. He asked the question of my brother's keeper, and the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> you are. You should have been. And you know that. but why does Cain fall short this gets at the nature of sin Um, because God says to him if you do right won't you be accepted but if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you you must rule over it so we get this idea that sin is like this temptation that, that we have agency over if we choose it but will rule us if we don't. It's, it's actually the same language that God uses of Eve when, when he says to her, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Same terms. Same terms. So we know automatically that, that God is hinting at what, uh, what Cain's driving motivation is. Cain wants to be accepted. He wants to belong. So that's one aspect. Cain wants something that he doesn't feel like he's getting. He wants acceptance. But we're not told much else. Later, though, uh, Cain kind of gets brought up again and again in the biblical story. And one of the ways that Cain gets brought up later on is um, in the early church in the book of Jude, verse 11, when there are these um, sort of people that are infiltrating the church and sort of corrupting what's happening within the church, And Jude, uh, it says to them, woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. The way of Cain. They have rushed for profit. And uh, profit into Balaam's error. They are shepherds who feed only themselves. So so what Jude is saying is, uh, there are these people that are infiltrating the church, and they're out for their own gain. Just like Balaam, who is a prophet that sold himself out to, to God's enemies in order to hold back, um, like to get blessing for himself, um, the picture that we get of Cain is that he also intentionally withheld resources from the abundance that God gave him as a farmer. See, sin for Cain was allowing himself to become ruled by his desire for security and belonging. Those are two out of the three main desires that we've talked about through this whole series, right? Significance, security, and belonging. And Cain checks the box on at least two of them. The result of giving into that temptation compromised his God-given purpose. And so his brother, who is is sense. Supposed to be a blessing to him becomes competition for blessing. Out of a perceived lack of resources. Cain's thinking in his mind there, aren't eno- there isn't enough accept- acceptance and security to go around. And so he reaches out and he grabs, he takes his life. It's the same word that is used for Eve when she takes the fruit. See all the parallels here? Gosh, Hebrew poetry is beautiful. It's amazing. I mean, the Bible is a literary masterpiece. It really is. So, so Cain's failure, which, which Genesis depicts as this continuation of the falling of humanity, is the same falling that we see in Israel's course of existence. That they, they too, like Cain, distrusted God's provision, They believed that he was withholding blessing like the other gods do to their neighbors. And then out of their insecurity, they see the, the weak and the foreigner and the poor among them not as blessings to lift up, but as competition for resources. They are a drag on the system. And rather than protect them, like the brothers and sisters they are, they exploit them and treat them as meaningless. And so the, the result of, of this misbelief about God, this mistrust in His goodness and His resources and His blessing, means that they violently oppress and they even kill in order to consolidate all the resources of the poor. Forgetting the word of the Lord throughout the book of Deuteronomy. See, sin for Israel, for both Israel and for Cain, is a failure to live up to their divine purpose because of a mistrust of God's nature. We also see about sin that it has consequences, right? We talked about this last week, that sin always comes with consequences. So sin infects Cain, Cain kills his brother, and then in turn, the sin that infected Cain corrupts the ground, which is the very source of Cain's abundance in the first place. It's a cyclical nature. It comes back to bite him. And even though Cain sees his exile as a punishment, as something that God is doing to him, and he says to God, my punishment is too great, it is clear that God disagrees with that assessment. He says, not so. See, we often think of sin as deserving some sort of additional punishment in addition to the sin. That God somehow, when, when, when we sin, goes, oh, well, the consequences aren't enough. I'm going to add punishment to sin in order to make them really sorry. That's Cain's assessment of the situation, and God vehemently disagrees with him. He says that's not reality. What happens to Cain is a consequence of his choice. Again, Cain's belonging and security were were the things that that he was after, and he bypassed God to grab for those things. And so he poisoned the source of them in trying to grab them. The fruit that looked good to his eye and pleasing to to, to gain what he was after turned into a fruit of poison when he grabbed for it. And he goes away from the presence of God not because God can't look him in the face, but because he can't look God in the face anymore. You see it. Nothing has changed about God's disposition towards Cain. It's Cain who's unable to receive the forgiveness and healing that he needs to in this moment. And so his consequence then is the same consequence as it is for Israel. He's expelled from the land, which God tells uh, Israel, when they are exiled, is now going to lie fallow for at least one generation because it needs to recover from 400 years of injustice. You see it? The land is poisoned because of Israel's transgression. It's not because God wanted to punish them, but it's because the land itself was crying out for rest and redemption from the sin that it was subjected to. Friends, we see this throughout Scripture sin is its own punishment. God does not want to add punishment to your sin. He wants to rescue you from your sin and the punishment that you inflict upon yourself by choosing it. Sin is like a disease. It's like a poison that we've drunk that infects every relationship. It alienates us from God and from each other and from the earth itself. From our very purpose as image bearers. And like Cain, we often ascribe the consequences of our choices to God. And we say, you did this to me. But this is not reality. The good news that we proclaim today is that God does not want us to experience the full weight of our sin. He is not like other gods. The worst thing that you've ever done is not enough to halt His love for you. And even in the moments of your greatest guilt, when the consequences are too great to bear, God comes to you to help you make sense of your reality. And he invites you to reckon with your wrongdoing, to enable you to see the mistrust that motivates you to harm yourself and to harm others. He works to gently restore you from the misconceptions that you have about him, putting an end to the cycles of violence by extending mercy. The nature of God, and then we're going to respond. Again, Israel is, um, we've said this before, but when they are in exile in Babylon, Israel is awash in other gods. They are surrounded by the cultural gods of Babylon. Um, they have the gods of other ancient Near Eastern cultures sort of ringing in their ears. And these gods are violent and vindictive, they're vulgar, vicious. I'm sure there are other V words. I just can't think of them right now. But Yahweh, their God, is not like these other gods. Our God is not like these other gods. So there's all these parallels. Other gods, they require payment for blessing. You need to placate and appease them in order for the abundance to flow. But in this story, the brothers are given gifts of abundance out of what God has already provided. And they give gifts back to God out of gratitude, not obligation. Other gods punish those who withhold their worship. But this God is more concerned about Cain's anger than his gift. This God comes not to exact payment, but to help unpack misplaced desires and misconceptions. You see it. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was common to mark a guilty person with a tattoo as a sign of their guilt. It was a way to green light um, anyone who wanted to shame them and excommunicate them or even kill them if they so felt it. We see this in the law codes of Hammurabi and Eshnunna. And the, the other gods loved this. They endorsed it these perpetual cycles of violence, because this is exactly who they are too. But Cain's mark, it doesn't identify his guilt. What does it identify? God's ownership of him. God's protection over him. See, it's it's not retributive, it's restorative. It doesn't amplify violence with violence, but it ends violence with mercy. We're going to see this again next, um, next week. Yeah, with the flood narrative. Cain's God, Israel's God, our God, he comes to us in our moments of greatest guilt and he says, I'm not like the gods that you're used to hearing about. I'm not interested in retribution. I'm putting an end to it by marking you, not with your guilt but with my name. You still belong to me. You're my firstborn son and I have not turned my face from you. What we see God doing for Cain is what God was doing for Israel. It's what God continues to do for us. But the worst thing that we've ever done is not enough to halt God's love. That even in our moments of greatest guilt when the consequences are too much to bear, God comes to us to help us make sense of our reality. He invites us to reckon with our wrongdoing. He enables us to see the mistrust that motivates us to harm and sin against each other. He works to gently restore us from the misconceptions that we have about him. And he puts an end to our cycles of violence by repaying violence with mercy. Where do you need this merciful God to intervene in your story? Where do things feel senseless in your world right now? I mean, maybe the easier question is where do they don't? <laughs> where are you full of questions, though? Full of anxiety, full of uneasiness, full of shame, full of guilt, full of wanting to hide. Full of wanting to cry. Wanting to run. I imagine for many of us, the things that seem most senseless are the things that are like external events. It's been a hard week for the world. Full of what seems like senseless violence. With very little ability to do anything about it. I know for myself, I'm struggling to reckon with how in the world this could happen in the 21st century. And we want to, like I, I felt this deep need, like reading this story, to, like I want to be my brother's keeper, but I don't know how. Do you feel that this week? We're cr- I'm just crying out for justice, 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 God. For some of us, though, it could be internal realities that don't seem to fit. We wonder why we act certain ways in certain situations, why we respond with anger or sarcasm or defensiveness when something is said or done to you. We wish we knew our hearts better, but it's a mystery to us. Or we've experienced a falling short of who we were designed to be and we're maybe facing consequences that feel too great for us to bear. What feels senseless to you? Where do you need mercy? The thing that struck me about this story, I'm going to just mention this and then we'll pray. The thing that struck me in light of all the internal and external unrest that I feel is that Cain, this guilty person, is the first person to pray in the Bible. And the very first prayer... In the Bible is a plea for mercy so if you need prayer if things don't feel like they make sense to you even in your own heart or in the world like there is good news today and I want to respond by taking hold of that good news so let's pray